0: I may not be as, as selective as, as Lucas is in noticing, in noticing things. However, we will try to be selective in what we notice about Lincoln coming up to his inauguration. I have a question for you. Having read, as you have now, having read the House Divided speech, and now having read the Cooper Union speech, which are separated from each other by less than two years... Lincoln gives the House Divided Speech at the beginning of his senatorial campaign. In June of 1858, he delivers the Cooper Union Address in February of 1860. So not a huge amount of time separates these two documents. I want to ask you a question. First off, was Lincoln paranoid? I mean, look at it. Put yourself in the position of someone sitting to Lincoln as he delivers the House Divided Speech. How does he begin? If we could first know where we are and whither we are tending, so forth and so on, you know. Now, if we could understand the situation, we would know what to expect from the situation. And then he launches into this, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Where does he get that from? It comes from the Bible. And what is, a descri- what is it a description of? I mean, is it a celebration description? No, no. A house divided against itself cannot stand. What's going to happen to a house divided? It's going to fall, and great will be the fall of it. Boy, that's not an optimistic way to begin a speech, is it? What does that, if someone, if I said to you today, a house divided against itself cannot stand, we are a house divided, what conclusion would you draw? What would it sound like I'm advocating? I'm predicting it's going to fall. I'm predicting dissolution. I'm predicting something really, really unpleasant. Now, Lincoln hastened to try to soften that by saying, I do not expect the house to fall. But I do expect that it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. But the words, house divided, were already out. What people heard was, house divided. And people in what was in those days a much more predominantly religious culture which recognized biblical allusions the way we recognize jingles from commercials. All that they heard was house divided and all they saw in their mind's eye was and they concluded, my goodness, this man is advocating civil war. And then what does he go on to do? Once he's established this house divided business Then he starts into this, well, you know, we're five years into pursuing a policy. Of course, five years. Subtract five years from from 1858. We're talking about the Kansas-Nebraska Act. We're talking about Douglass' popular sovereignty. We're five years into pursuing a policy based upon popular sovereignty, and what do we got to show for it? Douglass promised that popular sovereignty was going to pull the stinger. That popular sovereignty was going to be the bomb. B-A-L-M, not the explosive device, which healed all the wounds caused by the disagreements over slavery. Popular sovereignty was going to bring peace. Popular sovereignty was going to bring a settlement. It was going to diffuse the controversy. And five years' worth of popular sovereignty have got us what? Not only has the situation not been diffused, it's gotten worse. Well, why is this? Why did this policy of popular sovereignty, which looked like it was going to be the answer to every problem, why did it not work? And Lincoln's answer is, because it never was intended to work. Popular sovereignty was only a cloak for a much more sinister, much more sinister result. And if you want to find out what popular sovereignty's real agenda is, go and look at the result and look at the people who are involved. And you see the image he uses of a house framed together. Now, what Lincoln is saying is, you know, isn't it remarkable that all these policies that have been proposed by Douglas and by his confreres, isn't it funny how all of these policies have had one basic result, and that is to promote the interests of slavery? I mean, doesn't, doesn't it, by the end of the day, begin to dawn on us? that all of these policies are really pointing in the same direction, and that same direction is not what popular sovereignty promises. Something else is going on. There's a little sleight of hand here. The guy who's dealing the cards, the little stumpy guy from Illinois, the guy who's dealing the cards is not telling us what the real game is. Well, how can we be sure that there really is another more subtle game being played here? He says, well, go back to the analogy of the house. If you saw a house being built, and a house was being built up piece by piece, log by log, frame by frame, it was all neatly notched, it was all coming together, and part of it was, 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 was cut by Stephen, and part of it was cut by Franklin, and part of it was cut by James, and part of it was cut by Roger, what would you assume? You would assume that Roger and Stephen and James and Franklin had all been together from the first in how they were sawing up the wood and laying out all the plans and creating this kit that was going to become a house. Well, when you see all the pieces of popular sovereignty, all contributing to the extension of slavery, to the promotion of slavery, shouldn't you likewise conclude that they were all in cahoots from the first? And that becomes the basis on which Lincoln is making his appeal in 1858. Now part of, that, part of that is because, as I had said earlier, one of the great problems Lincoln has to deal with is the fact that the eastern establishment of the Republican Party had really started to cotton up to Stephen A. Douglas. It was a very opportunistic thing, but it was opportunistic for both Douglas and them. And what Lincoln wants to do is to make it absolutely clear Stephen A. Douglas is not a friend of the Republican cause. Lincoln wants to create as much rhetorical distance as he can between Douglas and the real aims of the Republican Party. What is the real aim? What is the real purpose of the Republican Party? It's to put slavery in its place where it's not going to grow. What is Douglas promoting? Growth. So don't let anybody in the Republican Party think that Stephen A. Douglas is somebody we want to accommodate or compromise with, much less adopt as one of our candidates. Lincoln wants to make it very clear that eastern republicans and republicans anywhere should not be supporting Stephen A Douglas and should not look to Stephen A Douglas for any kind of hope. He wants to make that absolutely wants to make the distinction between himself the choice between himself and Douglas as radical as he can make it. And so he does. Not only is popular sovereignty not solving the problem, but Douglas is hand in glove with people who are trying to promote the interests of slavery. So I ask you the question, is Lincoln paranoid? I mean, if you sat and listened to this address, with its, with its rhetoric of conspiracy, with this secret plan that supposedly Roger, Franklin, James, and Stephen are participants in, would this sound reasonable to you? Would you vote for this man? If you had read the house divided speech, if you had heard the house divided speech, would you vote for this man? You think so? A little too apparent. Why? What do you know that we don't?
1: I don't think it was a conspiracy, but I do believe he's right in. the end. I mean, the House divided situation, but I don't think it was a conspiracy.
2: What's a conspiracy? Well, I don't know. You All tell you me. this room when you start... And you start teaching a particular philosophy. Mm-hmm. And I agree with that philosophy, and every time there's an opportunity, I contribute a piece to that philosophy. Mm-hmm. Is it a conspiracy? Not really. Well, if people, if people saw
0: day. us down the hall chatting.
2: But, but, but yet, still, How do pieces they know are that? all fitting together because we're working for the same common goal.
0: How do they know that you weren't over at my office this morning? No. Oh, all right, all right, all right shows that Lincoln can be just as demagogic
1: almost as Douglas can be. And he's using a logical fallacy here saying that we can find out what the aim is by just looking at what the result is.
0: Is this paranoia? Is this demagoguery? Would you vote for this man? <coughs> I
2: always have to
0: well, you know, I really like that optimistic affirmation of American politics, <laughs> right? Um, Lucas, how long has she been with you? And uh, this is the best she can. We're still with <laughs> right? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Go ahead. You
1: can say there's a conspiracy there, but then I see with Dred Scott it actually weakened some of Douglas's positions and actually led to him not becoming president, most likely if they had not struck down that part of popular sovereignty in Dred Scott, he may become president in 1860. Yeah, this is so an, interesting,
0: actually, that's an interesting point. So interesting I don't know if we can
1: really say that there, maybe there is a conspiracy between Buchanan and and Roger Tanney you know, when, when the Dred Scott decision came out, but I don't know if Douglas was necessarily involved in that.
0: All right. So you think that, that Lincoln is a bit over the over the edge with this? So you wouldn't vote for Lincoln because you heard this and you think, oh, come on, you know?
2: I would vote for Lincoln
1: because I would agree with his um, principles that he's
0: talking about. Well, you don't have to vote at all. Remember, I mean, you can just stay home election day.
2: LBJ make assertions without evidence not true.
0: Well, so you think that. Abraham Lincoln is on the same political plane with Lyndon Baines Johnson, huh? In LA, yeah. oh, ho, ho, ho. Well, that'll take us an interesting direction, wouldn't it? Would anybody vote for Lincoln if you'd sat there soberly and listened to this? That's what I'm asking. Yeah?
2: Would Northern business interests benefit at all from preventing spread of slavery?
0: No because what are northern business interests in the business of doing? They're making money. How are they making money? Because they they are acting as brokers for southern cotton. Now how do you suppose that, how do you suppose that they're acting as brokers for southern cotton? How do northerners get involved in the production of southern cotton? Truck out there. All right, insurance is one thing. Yes, because northern companies will write insurance policies on southern plantations. Now, it's not because there aren't southern insurance companies, but because, you know, it's like Geico. There's always someone out there uh, offering to undercut someone else. And you know maybe a northern insurance company can do better than some southern insurance company. So there are some northern insurance companies which have, so to speak, a stake in the success of a southern plantation. Because if you're selling somebody insurance, what do you want to keep doing? Well, yes, you'd like not to pay them. You want them to pay you, right? You want them to keep paying you premiums. Now, if someone comes along and says they're going to abolish slavery, what's that going to do to that southern plantation? Yeah, they're going to put it out of business. And when they're out of business, are they paying premiums to you? No. So if you're an insurance, set, all right, you suddenly find yourself at the stake in the perpetuation of of slavery. And not just insurance. What other kinds of northern business Would, would... Shipping. There was
2: a slave trade.
0: Well, there and is a domestic slave trade. a lot
2: of slave trading going
0: on. And Except that in Rhode Island, okay, Rhode Island is not in the slave business by 1858. Rhode Island's role in the slave trade effectively ended with the Revolution and legally ended in 1808 when the ban on the international slave trade, the, the Atlantic slave trade, uh, is imposed. But
2: they had ships under other people's <clears throat>
1: registries that they were involved in, and they would switch ships and switch captains.
0: Oh, yeah, and you go through Cuba. Yeah. Yeah, you can, you can do it, but it's, but it's much, much more attenuated than in the days before the Revolution when Newport, Rhode Island, was, was the Las Vegas of North America. <laughs> I mean, it was, that was a wild place to be because that was the, the chief shipping point before 1776 of the slave trade in North America. But well, let me come back to this matter of northern business in 1858. What other kinds of businesses are going to find themselves a little reluctant to see people talking loosely about houses being divided and national leaders involved in conspiracies? What
1: else? There were actually factories that just catered to the slave trade, making clothes for the slave, shoes for the slave. Sure. I mean. You you get rid of
0: slavery, that factory shuts down. Exactly. I mean, look, if the great staple of the southern economy is cotton, and if it is what it really was in the 19th century, the white gold of the transatlantic economy, I mean, what oil is to our economy today, cotton was to the 19th century industrial economy, because the Industrial Revolution is built on textiles. Then, as a Southerner, what are you going to put all your chips on producing? Cotton. That means if you're busy producing cotton, all cotton, all the time, then where are you going to get manufactured goods? You're going to have to buy them from someone else. In this case, you'll have to buy them from either abroad or from Northerners. So Northern businesses get into the business of supplying clothes, shoes, things like that. And that's, that's going directly to slave owners. What other kinds of northern business will get involved in the southern economy? I'm sorry, what? Textile mills. Textile mills, because textile mills, in order to make textiles, need what? Cotton. 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 So northern textile mills will get cotton from southern plantations. And if that supply of cotton is in any way disrupted or endangered, you're out of business. (laughs) So not too many cotton mill owners are going to be signing up to be abolitionists, are they? And the other businesses likely to be involved? businesses they're cotton be
1: shipping at least some
0: portion of agricultural goods down there. Someone's got to feed the, the South. If the South is busy growing cotton, it's not growing beans and corn. so someone's got to provide that. yeah what else? The banking, system. banking system. How does a plantation? Grow cotton, and I don't mean just putting seeds in the ground, okay? Where do you get the seeds from? Seeds do not shower down free, okay? You've got to buy your seed, you've got to buy your plants, you've got to buy them, and you've got to have money to buy them. But where do you get the money to buy them if you haven't gotten a cotton crop for, uh, uh, up front? Yeah, you get a loan. It's like everybody today, you want to start a business? You haven't got cash in hand, that's going to come, but you go to the bank and you get a loan, okay? Where's the bank? Well, there's banks in the south, but there's also banks in the north. And in fact, the whole banking system really relies, is, is, is interconnected. And each part of it relies on the other. So the banking system lends to a particular southern plantation the money to start up the crop. That immediately gives that bank a stake in the slave system. Because obviously, if you've lent money to a particular southern planter, you don't want the guy to go bankrupt. I mean, you want as reasonably as possible to assist him in success. So are you going to favor the abolition of slavery? Heavens no, you don't want to rock the boat because your money's at stake. And as they say, money never lies. Money always tells you whose side people are on. So if you heard this house divided speech, how would you react to it? Would you vote for this man? Yes?
2: I don't know if I'd vote for him, but I guess where I was going with it in terms of expanding slavery to the territories, it seems like you have a lot of financial um, interests in expanding slavery. with no kind of counterweight to that other than northern religious people or you know, northern moralistic people. Like, there's a moral argument and there's a financial argument. Mm-hmm. It's going to win out.
0: Good question. So
2: I, I get just as far as the conspiracy goes to me, doesn't I assume like that conspiracy it's more a matter of forces that society can I'm going to go with the financial sources for the win over the moral sources pretty much every single
0: time. Not all the time, though. <laughs> Not all the time. Two things here that enter into it. First of all, you notice that Lincoln himself recognizes this. In that letter to Henry Pierce, he says, what distinguishes the Republican Party? The Republican Party is for the man and the dollar. But if it comes to a choice between the two, it's for the man before the dollar. And most of the people who were listening to him would say, oh, yes, yes, we do that. And then they'd go out and practice the exact opposite. All right? So the other part that Lincoln will work on is self-interest. He will appeal to self-interest. Again we go back to these components of human nature. Lincoln is not a sunny optimist about human nature. He does not believe that people do good because good is worth doing. He is not a romantic. All right? He is very much a man who thinks in terms of reason and motives and he understands that if you want people to behave in a certain way, you have to provide them with motives. What would be a motive for certain groups of northerners to favor the containment, at least the containment of slavery? What would be a motive? Yes, in the back.
1: Labor unions, lack of competition
0: for jobs. All right, there's competition for jobs, that would appeal to, work, to the working class, because you don't want slavery to be extended. Because if slavery is extended, then that's all the fewer job opportunities for free laborers. Because let's let's put it let's put it bluntly, although a slave costs a lot in terms of upfront costs over a period of time those costs are going to be amortized and slave labor is going to be on the whole cheaper than free labor. That's simply the, the blunt economic fact of it. The other thing is this, let's suppose that you're not a manufacturer or a banker or an insurance salesman. All right? Let's suppose you're a farmer, a northern farmer, and in 1858 The vast majority of productive Americans are farmers. I mean, we're not talking the robber barons in the 1850s. We're not talking about enormous, huge businesses. The average size of a northern industrial plant, a northern factory, in the 1850s was 14 workers. All right, so we're not talking GM here, we're not talking enormous corporations. We're talking about an economic environment in which most Americans are producing for themselves, and they're producing agricultural goods, and they're producing on the farm. Now, it might be that an insurance salesman, it might be that a banker, it might be that a manufacturer might not want to see the boat rocked with slavery. But suppose you are a farmer, and suppose things have gotten tight and expensive in Ohio and Pennsylvania. And you decide that you want, like Huck Finn, to light out for the territories. You want to pick up, you want to move to the territories where land is is cheap, where you can start over and be productive. That you could sell a 120-acre farm in Pennsylvania and buy 500 acres in Kansas. That way you not only provide for yourself and your immediate needs, you provide for your retirement. You also provide for your family because you can subdivide 500 acres a lot more ways than you can subdivide 120 uh, for your heirs. So if you want to go to Kansas and you want to be a farmer, that sounds like a good deal, except if you have to compete with plantations. Plantations, slave-based plantations with 100 slave laborers, can benefit from economies of scale that you as an individual proprietor can never hope to match. That means that if slavery is led into the territories, then all hope that you might have for expansion and development and progress just went poof. And it is to that self-interest that Lincoln will appeal. So that people who might not, on the basis of race, really give a wet slap about what happens to black slaves. Nevertheless, as an extension of their own self-interest, will not wish to see slavery extended. They will wish to see it contained. So when Lincoln gets up and talks about a house divided, in the hearing of people in that situation, how are they going to respond? They're going to say, ah, this man's a threat. No. They're going to say, conspiracy? Yeah, I'm afraid of conspiracy. Yeah, I I believe that Southerners could do that. I believe that slaveholders are capable of doing something like that. I believe they're capable of corrupting American politics to the point where Rogers, Stephen, Franklin, and James are in cahoots. So people, there are people who will hear this rhetoric of house divided and might not say, Lincoln's paranoid. We can't vote for a man like that. Not only is he playing to their self-interest, there's a certain extent to which Lincoln is even playing to their fears of what might happen in the future. Yes. don't, don't you see this in, in this uh, appeal to uh, self-interest in the somewhat forgotten planks of the Republican Party of you know, the Homestead Act? Oh yes. The, the Transcontinental Railroad. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Remember that Lincoln is an old line Henry Clay Whig. And he is very closely allied to thinking that is in favor of expansion in those ways. How are you going to have expansion? How is that going to take place if, in fact, slavery takes over the territories? Because Northerners will be unwilling to move into the territories. That'll cut off development. That'll cut off development. So another fear is going to be at work right there. Yeah? It's not just that Southerners get economies of scale. It's not just the Southerners own slaves. It's not just so that the Southerners have plantations and sit on the back porch drinking mint juleps. What kind of life, what kind of life does slavery promote? What style of life does slavery promote? If you are, if you are a slave owner, all right, let's suppose that you are someone who owns 15 slaves all right, I'm going to put you in that position just for a moment. You're a person who owns 15 slaves. Okay, what do slaves do? They work. You're their master. What should you do? Make sure they work. What else don't you do? You don't work yourself. Of course you don't work yourself. That's what we have got slaves for. Slaves do work. You don't do work, because if you did work, you would be... No better than slaves. You were doing slave work. Now, you don't, you don't want to be seen doing that. So, if you have slaves, you make sure they do the work and you sit on the porch sipping the mint julep. Now, not every Southern slaveholder was in that situation. The majority of Southern slaveholders, in fact, tended to own small numbers of slaves, anywhere from one to, to five slaves. And quite frequently, they did find themselves out working in the fields alongside their slaves. But those were poor whites, from whom one dearly didn't expect a whole lot anyway. If you really wanted respectability as a slaveholder, you would not dirty your hands with work. Work is something that slaves do. That becomes the ethic, the social ethic of slaveholding. Now, contrast this with the career of 1A Lincoln. Where did this man start? Top of the ladder or the bottom? Bottom. And he slowly, rung by rung, works his way up. He becomes a surveyor. He becomes a lawyer. He acquires respectability. He acquires standing as a politician. And it's all through the dint of his own labor. And when a young, would-be lawyer writes to him asking for advice on how to become a lawyer, Lincoln's response after listing the books he ought to read is to say, work, work, work is the main thing. Resolute determination. Yep. Now, what does a man like Abraham Lincoln see when he sees a slave owner? Walking down the street with his slaves behind him, picking up for him, doing for him. What does he see? He sees an aristocrat. He sees a repudiation of everything his life has been built around. Because what does that southern slaveholder see when he looks at Abraham Lincoln? He sees sees poor white trash. Or he sees a tradesman, someone definitely not on the same social level as the aforementioned southern slaveholder. And Lincoln bridles at that. To him, what slavery promotes, in addition to all the other things that it is involved with, what slavery promotes is a social ethic that spurns work. And he not only revolts at that personally, because that's an indictment of his entire life, that's to take the values he's built his life around and trash them completely. But it is to say to every other voter he's speaking to in Illinois, slavery is going to judge you the same way. Slavery is going to behave towards you with its nose in the air and as though you were white trash. Now that's an appeal to whites in Illinois. But it is exactly the kind of appeal to self-interest that Lincoln is going to make and which lies at the very foundations of his resentments of slavery. Yeah?
2: Well, doesn't he also, in one of the readings
1: where Lincoln says that if they enslave the black man to do labor, what's to stop them from enslaving the white man to do the same labor? Right. What's
0: the basis? What's the basis of slave labor? Well, you say it is color. Ooh. Well, if the basis is color, then, you know, on that strictly on that basis, then the person who comes along who is lighter shaded than you should be your master. If we're going to take the logic of slavery that way. Now that sounds a little strange, but I want you to to backpedal for a minute and reflect on a couple of facts about slavery. Slavery, I said when I was defining what a slave was, is someone who is entirely in the power of their master. When I say entirely in their power, I don't just mean economic or social or legal, but also sexual. It was a given of southern plantation life that black slave women had no protection whatsoever from the advances of white slave owners. And it was estimated by Theodore Tilton, the editor of the New York Independent, in 1865 that as much as two-thirds of the enslaved black population of the South was in fact partly white. During the war, as the Union Army moved through the South, abolitionists like to remind people of this by displaying photographs of slave children. And some slave children would be black, but other slave children would be almost indistinguishable from white people. And should this surprise us, I think we all know, or we all have heard, of the incident involving Thomas Jefferson and his slave Sally Hemings. And we think well there is a classic case of a white man with power taking advantage of and exploiting a black woman with no power. Which is true but it's not the whole story. Sally Hemings was after all not a stranger to Thomas Jefferson. Sally Hemings was, in fact, the natural daughter of Jefferson's father-in-law. Sally Hemings was the product of a relationship between a slave woman and Thomas Jefferson's father-in-law, which means that Martha Jefferson, Jefferson's wife, and Sally Hemings were half-sisters. So we not only have racial exploitation, we've got a little flavor of incest as well. In later years, after Jefferson's death, Sally Hemings lived in Charlottesville, Virginia. And when, in 1830, the census taker came around, and as the census taker did, classified people according to race on the basis of what they looked like, he classified Sally Hemings as white. Sally Hemings was a clear-cut example of exactly the social ethic of slavery. So you are looking at a system, you are looking at a system which not only dehumanizes and debases people but which in fact opens up every possible imaginable avenue to exploitation that that could be contemplated. It also explains to a very large degree one of the great follies, among many follies, that Americans over the years have entertained on the subject of race. We have frequently behaved as though race was a recognizable category. But the actual history of race in America is, genetically speaking, something a whole lot more complicated. Because I think I would be safe in saying, genetically speaking, that there are many, 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 many black Americans out there who, in fact, have more white genetic material than they dream, and more white people out there who have more black genetic material going back to slavery than they could dream of. And there are plenty of surprises for people. Maybe you saw the television special several months ago in which uh, the Harvard professor, uh, Henry Louis Gates, Skip Gates, on the basis of DNA sampling and analysis, discovered that he was, in fact, a descendant not just of white people, but of Jewish white people. I'm trying to imagine Skip Gates in a yarmulke. But genetically, he would be entitled to it. And the same thing is true for many, many, many other people. Unless you know for a fact who exactly your great-great-grandparents were on both sides or many sides of the family, then you may have a few surprises in store for you. But as I say, that is the peculiar part of American race. We've gone through long periods of our history dividing people up on the basis of race, when in fact, genetically speaking, The real history of race and slavery in America has been a very, very, very mixed bag. At the end of the day, we are all much, 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 much more alike than we dream. In an offhanded way, we have slavery to thank for that, if you can actually say thank you. But it is a fact. I remember many years ago, one very amusing incident at the Civil War Library and Museum in Philadelphia. A man came in from Kentucky wanted to research his Civil War ancestors. This man was a first class Jeff Foxworthy redneck. All right. And he wanted to look up his Civil War ancestors. He wanted to he had some evidence, some papers and you know, trace all that they were doing and where they had been. And I expect he fully believed that he was soon going to encounter uh, the Confederate flag and uh, the sons of Confederate veterans and so on like that. By the end of the day and by the end of the search he found his ancestors, all right. They were in the 15th United States Colored Troops. Surprise, surprise. We are all more alike than we think we are. We are inevitably hilariously America. But yes, this is what happens in slavery. Is Lincoln paranoid? Is Lincoln paranoid to see a conspiracy at work here? I want to try to answer the question. Because in fact, people in Illinois were greatly divided over this. Lincoln's own Republicans say, why did you say that? Why do you invoke this house-divided stuff? Where did you get this stuff from? This is, this is radical. This is going to play right into Douglass's hands. And in fact, it does. Nevertheless, Lincoln says, it was a truth which I thought needed telling, and I told it. The House Divided speech. Now, contrast this with the Cooper Union address. Where in the Cooper Union address does he refer to a House Divided? Somebody can tell me? Where in the Cooper Union address does he refer to a house divided? You're gonna be looking for a long time. He doesn't? No house divided. Ooh. All right, all right, right. so there's no house divided. Okay, we can forgive the man for not just repeating himself. Look, you know, I only get one house-divided speech per person, okay? You, know, you just can't keep doing it all over the place. All right. Uh, in that case, all right, let's put the house divided. We put that divided. Okay, where does he talk about the conspiracy of James, Roger, Franklin, and Stephen? No conspiracy? Where does he talk... Where does he talk about the evil power, the slave power that has concocted this scheme to drag the Western territories down into the pit of slavery? Where does he talk about that? What does he say is the basic difference between Northerners and Southerners on the subject of slavery?
1: Morality.
0: Yeah, and specifically what an
1: understanding of what the framers intended.
0: And not and you know something not even just morality, but what we think about morality. Our thinking it wrong and your thinking it right is the only thing that divides us. I mean, as if that's only, as though it's merely or just. But still, he puts it in very soft terms. The only thing it's a little like saying the only thing that divides us is that we radically disagree about this. <coughs> I mean, that's good enough for a boxing match. But it's put in these terms. The only, it's, it's only a difference of opinion.
1: Different
0: audience. Yeah, it's a different audience, all right. Except that it's a northern audience. Well, I mean, why didn't he let her rip?
1: It's a rich eastern, northeastern oh, I audience mean, for audience that he needs to carry the presidency.
0: It's right. first trip out east. If you want... It's actually not his first trip. Well, Remember, he's been to Washington.
1: Major political...
0: This is a major political opportunity for him. He's brought to Cooper Union as part of a series sponsored by the Young Men's Republican Committee of New York City. And he's earned this invitation because of his strong showing against Stephen Douglas. Yes, he lost, but it was not a catastrophic loss. And the debates in which he stymied Douglas made his reputation. See, the great mistake about Stephen A. Douglas was not that he agreed to the debates, It's that he did not realize that in the East, people would start reading the text of the debates because it was Stephen Douglas. But midway through it, they're starting to read the text of the debates because it's this guy, Lincoln, who turns out to be much more interesting than Stephen A. Douglas. Talk about upstaging Stephen Douglas. And so for that reason, Lincoln gets the invitation to come to New York City. Now, officially, this is simply an invitation so that East Coast Republicans can get to know West Coast Republicans and what West Coast Republicans think. And it has to be said that when Lincoln gets up and starts speaking, he confirms all the worst suspicions of East Coast Republicans. Because he gets up in the middle, he gets up at the, uh, the Cooper Union in front of all these elite New Yorkers. He's introduced by William Colin Bryant, the poet and the editor of the, of the New York Evening Post. It doesn't get any more prestigious than that. And this man stands up Oh my goodness! This man stands up on these incredible long bony legs. He looks like a jackknife unfolding when he, when he when he stands up. And he's, I mean, he's in a in a new but wrinkled suit. You know, he he paid two hundred dollars for the suit, but um, you know, he's, it's been in his traveling gear for a while and. You know, the baggage handlers in 1860 were no gentler with the baggage than they are today. And, and it's a wrinkled, it's a new but wrinkled. suit. in other words, he looks like a rube. You can take somebody out, but you just can't dress them up. And then on top of it all is that head. Oh, my goodness. I mean, he's just, he's, I'm sorry, but he's ugly. The gentle word for that is homely. And, and Lincoln knew he was homely looking. He knew he was not going to be a poster boy. He made jokes about his own looks. And he did that not because he thought they were funny, but because it was better to beat the others to the punch. You know, sometimes I like to make jokes that way myself, because I know everyone has been sitting here thinking for three days, does he know he looks like Fraser? So, so Lincoln knew what was going through people's minds, okay? I'll tell you a funny story, and it happened right here in Gettysburg. There's a place over on, um, on Middle Street, uh, which is, is called Ron's Eatery, which, which several years ago was Ron's Reads. You know, you go and get a paper there, books or things like that. And one time visiting Gettysburg, I walked in and uh, wanted to buy the paper, and the proprietor, whose name I will not reveal, because <laughs> it would be too embarrassing for him. Um, the proprietor behind the desk looks at me and says, you're Fraser, aren't you? And I said, uh, no, I'm not. <laughs> and he said, oh, yes, you are.
2: <laughs>
0: I said, no, I'm not. He said, I'm, I, I understand. <laughs> and, uh, the guy ducks down beneath the desk, comes up with a camera, <laughs> takes my picture. And he's saying, "Where are you staying?" I said, "Well, I'm, I'm just, I'm just kind of." Oh, yeah, I understand that. You can't tell people that either. Yeah. Just want, just want the paper, you know. He framed the picture and had it hanging on his wall. Until somebody finally persuaded him that it was not Kelsey Grammer. Okay, you know? so he took it down. I ran into him, uh, oh, I guess about eighteen months ago, and uh, oh, I said. And, he's, and he looked at me and he said, You've been in my store before, haven't you? I <laughs> he said, hey, That's right. Let me tell you about it. <laughs> so Lincoln knew what people were thinking when he stood up. <laughs> all right? He was looking at someone who looked like all bone and no flesh. I mean, he just looked cadaverous that sallow complexion, those high cheekbones, those hollow cheeks. And he began to speak, and it only became worse. Because he spoke in this high-pitched voice. And he spoke with a distinct southern Illinois and Kentucky twang. And sometimes his voice, when he wanted to make a point, could be downright shrill. (laughs) And at least one person sitting in Cooper Union that night reflected to themselves, where did they get this clown from? Is this what they grow in the West? Is this what they call a Western Republican? And people just thought, this is embarrassing. Why did we get him here? He's going to make us look stupid. You know how it is when you invite someone to come and speak and they're just an idiot? And what are you sitting thinking? You're thinking partly how much you would like to kill them. But but you're also thinking of how much everyone in the auditorium wants to kill you. And and these two fears are fighting each other. They're combating each other within your soul. Well, it was something like that at the beginning. It starts out. And within about five minutes, within about five minutes, all you can hear is the hissing of the gas jets because the man as ungainly as he looks and as strange as he sounds nevertheless the logic of what he lays out is so compelling that he has people by the throats and the lapels And by the time he finishes the Cooper Union address an hour and a half later, people are on their feet cheering and thumping on their chairs and their hats are sailing into the air and one man turns to Noah Brooks and says to him, he's the greatest man since St. Paul. (laughs) But what does he say here? Let me ask you this question. I'm going to reverse the perspective of the first question I asked If you were an abolitionist, if you were an abolitionist, would you be satisfied with the Cooper Union address? <laughs> no. Why not? It doesn't go far enough. It doesn't we're go far enough. Really? How far does it? The one who gave money to White That's right. <laughs> well then she speaks with authority. Mm. <laughs> if if you were an abolitionist, would you be satisfied with the Cooper Union address? Why not? The word the E-word never appears, does it? He never talks about emancipating slaves here. What else does he what else does he say? What else? If you were a card-carrying abolitionist and you were sitting in the Cooper Union, it was actually the basement auditorium. It's still there, incidentally. I mean the Cooper Institute itself is still there, but the, the basement room, the big basement auditorium room. Is, uh, is still there, still actually almost entirely unchanged from February of 1860. You can still go there and shout loudly and hear an echo like Lincoln. If you were an abolitionist sitting in that audience in that basement auditorium, what would you think when you heard this Cooper Union address? I'd be shocked because he
1: doesn't think that Kant con- Congress has the right to interfere with slavery where it exists. Yeah, in exactly. the States, right. In exactly builds the case that that would be in fact the intention of the framers.
0: What's, what's going to be the result of a political program based on the Cooper Union address? Does it, does it seem like it's actually going to do anything? Has this got any teeth in it?
1: Only stop the spread of slavery in
2: okay. the territories.
0: Yeah, we'll just, we'll just contain it. We're not going to try to extinguish it. We're going going to contain it. Now, the basis on which we're going to contain it is the founders. Notice how he begins this speech. He begins in a very clever way. Stephen A. Douglas appears, not literally. See, even in New York, Lincoln cannot get Stephen Douglas off Uh his mind. It's like Stephen Douglas is this uh, constant holograph. It's following him around all of his life. So he starts off by quoting Stephen A. Douglas, that the founders knew far better than we do today what to do about slavery. He says, you know something? I'm going to agree with Douglas on that point and turn it against him. Let's look at what the founders actually said. So he goes through the Articles of Confederation. He goes through the members of the Constitutional Convention. He counts all the noses, counts all the votes, and he comes to the conclusion that they did not anticipate the growth of slavery. They believed slavery was going to die out where it was, and that was fine with them, and they wanted to hedge it in so that it would be extinguished. End of argument, says Lincoln. See, that's what the founders thought, and by extension, that's what we should think too. Now, he then t- says, now let me give a word to the Southerners. That is, if they haven't quite got the message yet. Having said all this about containing slavery, which, if you are an abolitionist, sounds pretty mild, he now turns around to Southerners and he says, look, you know, we do We don't have anything against you. We like you. It's that you don't like us. You want us to do things that you would never agree to do. You want us simply to agree 100% with you. Well, you know, can't we all just get along? You know, we up here in the North, we believe it's wrong, you believe it's right. Well, we'll just leave it there. Boy, that doesn't sound like a house divided, does it? But in fact, this is a different kind of speech. This is a different kind of speech. And if you were an abolitionist, you might be well justified in wondering where this man, Lincoln, stowed his fire. But if this is a point at which Lincoln seems like he's pulling in his horns, consider the alternative. Did the abolitionist cause ever have a realistic chance of succeeding as the abolitionist cause? In a given audience of people, how many people could you really expect to be abolitionists?
2: 10%, 10%.
0: Not even that. Not even that. Not even in Massachusetts. Not even in Massachusetts because while we identify abolitionism and William Lloyd Garrison with Massachusetts. The fact of the matter was most of Massachusetts didn't have much love for abolitionism either. Lincoln is speaking to a very different audience here. And he's also trying to deal with a very great reality, and that is the people who are advocating abolition are never really going to be in a position to change anything. They may enjoy whatever pleasure there is from holding the, uh, the moral high ground, but they're never going to be in a position to do anything about it. Not only that, not only are they not going to be in a, in a literal position, but in fact they will not occupy a constitutional position. Because while Lincoln is laying out here what he regards as the legitimate understanding of the intentions of the founders, those intentions will only go so far as containment. There is no constitutional ground for intervening in affairs of slavery in the states where it's legal. Why? Because, and this is going to be something that comes back to haunt us when we consider the Emancipation Proclamation, because slavery in America was a a result of state enactments. There was no federal statute creating slavery. The Constitution, as Lincoln is very quick to point out, doesn't even talk about slavery as slavery. I mean, it has some circumlocutions, but it doesn't really directly talk about slavery. And the only federal statute that touched on slavery was the Fugitive Slave Law, which was itself simply an extension and application of the constitutional requirement for interstate comity. Not to mention the fact that the Constitution itself explicitly provided for the rendition of fugitives, those held to service, which everybody knew was slaves. So, in fact, there is no federal authority at the federal level for dealing with slavery because slavery was not created at the federal level. What
2: about
0: the Northwest Ordinance. Northwest Ordinance is not interfering with states. The Northwest Ordinance was covering the organization of territories. The moment, the moment that states are carved out of the Northwest Territory and admitted to the Union is the moment when they can decide to become slave states on their own. And in fact, Illinois, once Illinois is admitted to the Union in 1819, three years later, there is a massive referendum push to rewrite the Illinois Constitution to legalize slavery in Illinois. It fails. is 1822 to twenty-three. The movement fails, but it was there. There were similar movements very early on in Ohio and Indiana to legalize slavery there. So once a state became a sovereign state, once it stopped being a territory on the property of Congress, once it became a sovereign state, it could decide for itself whether it wanted to have slaves or not. sticky situation. So on the federal level, there's really nothing that can be done. The only authority the federal government has over slavery is the international slave trade. And that, by provision of the Constitution, is banned in 1808. The only other point at which slavery impinges on the federal awareness is in the District of Columbia. There, it is legal. There, the slave trade is legal. There, a slave code is adopted. Not, however, a federal slave code, but in fact, simply a ratification of the existing Virginia and Maryland slave codes, simply declaring that they are in force in the District of Columbia. The District of Columbia is the only place where the federal government has any direct uh, sovereignty over slavery the only place where the federal government can do anything about slavery. And in fact, it's interesting that Lincoln, in his solitary term as a representative from Illinois, backs a proposal for District of Columbia Emancipation. But that was in 1849. We are now in 1858. And there is no more power now than there was in 1787 for the federal government to do anything about slavery. Abolitionists, you might be very nice and well-intentioned people, but you're not going to move the ball down the field. So Lincoln has to address a very different set of concerns and set up a different set of goals, ones that, what, that can be realized. Because while it might give you a thrill of moral superiority to be in pursuit of a goal that hasn't got a chance of realization, Lincoln would prefer to think in terms of what can actually do someone some practical good. Now I think it's interesting to notice here yet another contrast between the House Divided speech and the Cooper Union speech. Cooper Union speech is devoted to this idea of what the founders thought. Where are the founders in the House Divided speech? They're not there. There's another interesting contrast. When we come When we come to the Cooper Union speech, we really find the first major articulation of Lincoln's philosophy of the Founders. Now, it's not because he hasn't talked about the Founders before, he has. It's not even because he hasn't made this argument before, this argument about what the framers of the Constitution intended about slavery and the extension of slavery. He makes that argument as far back as the Peoria speech in October of 1856. But this, at Cooper Union, is the first time we start seeing a coherent structure being built, not just references to, but a coherent political structure being built on top of the founders. And in fact, what we're going to see in the documents that we have between Lincoln's election in November of 1860 and his inauguration on March 4, 1861, is a multiplication of references allusions and citations to the founders. More and more Lincoln begins to turn in that interregnum, that lame duck period, between his election and his inauguration, we find Lincoln turning increasingly to the founders for direction on the subject of slavery. And look at some of these documents. First of all, the letter to Alexander Stevens. Do people really believe that those of us who are northerners are going to march into the South and destroy slavery. So let me, put, let me tell you right now, that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen because it can't happen. Constitutionally, we cannot do that. But in connection with this letter to Stevens, he also works out in a separate document a sort of philosophy of the relationship of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and the Union. And he draws this analogy. In the Proverbs, Lincoln says, we talk about an apple of gold and a picture of silver. That is what he writes to Stevens. He says that if Stevens will come out strongly for the Union, it'll be like an apple of gold and a picture of silver. All right. The apple of gold and picture of silver analogy also explains the relationship of the Declaration and the Constitution because the one is made for the other. The fundamental ideas of American democracy are in the Declaration, but the frame around them is the Constitution. And you cannot do just with the one. You cannot work just with the one. You have to take them both. Then there's the farewell speech when he's leaving Springfield. It it has to be said that Lincoln was not much of a community man. I, I have to tell you that right away. People said that Lincoln was not one of these hail fellow, well met types. He was always involved in every, you know, he's in every local soccer league or golf league or in the Rotary or something like that. Lincoln was not a joiner. He was, as I I cited Carl Sandburg at the beginning, he was the strange friend and the friendly stranger. There was always something in Lincoln that stayed aloof, but which also stayed aloof from sort of communal identity. And the funny thing is that Lincoln always has the nicest things to say about certain communities that he's lived in when he's leaving them. All right? So the nicest things he has to say about Springfield are on the train which is taking him away. But notice how even in this farewell speech, which is very personal, what crops up? What is the most glaring reference here? What is the most obvious reference, the most clear, noisy reference to something. What really pushes people's buttons? I'm leaving with a burden greater than rested upon Washington. See, even at this moment, he's thinking about the founders. Then you go to his speech to the New Jersey Senate. And he's asking this question, what was at stake in the revolution? Was it just a lot of discontented Americans who wanted to be independent? No, he says. In my reflections, upon what the revolutionary generation was attempting to achieve, it has seemed to me that they were in pursuit of something much bigger, much more important than just independence from the King of England. They were after much bigger game. He is trying to understand the founders that what they intended was not something limited just to the North American continent in the year 1776. They were after some basic principles of human politics, human society, and human nature. And they were trying to articulate those and liberate those and lay them out so that everybody could see them, everybody in the world, that candid world that Jefferson talks about, could see and understand and apprehend. And then he comes to Independence Hall, on Washington's birthday, 22nd of February. It's, it's sort of hard for us to capture this now, but Washington's birthday, yeah, that, that was a major national holiday, along with the 4th of July. Right up there with the 4th of July. Today we've got it all collapsed down into President's Day, and all it means is a, you know, a Monday off. But But in Lincoln's day, Washington's birthday was sacred. Absolutely sacred. So when he is invited to come, not just to Philadelphia, but to Independence Hall, to raise the flag on Washington's birthday. That's great stuff. You know, it wasn't terribly long. My grandfather could remember, growing up as a boy in Philadelphia around the turn of the century, he could remember that the Fourth of July was a bigger event than Christmas. Well, on Lincoln's day, Washington's birthday was almost as big a deal as the Fourth of July. So there he is at Independence Hall, and he's reflecting on what the people at Independence Hall in 1787 had been about. And he says, I have never had an idea in politics that was not rooted in the Declaration of Independence. And rather than sacrifice those politics, he said, I would rather be assassinated on the spot. A little bit more than four years later, he would be laying in state in Independence Hall. So you might say there was a little eerie coincidence there. And then he comes to the first inaugural. He must give this inaugural address and when we turn to the first inaugural I I have yet another question, actually I have two questions to ask you. From reading the first inaugural do you believe that Lincoln expected civil war? You think he did? He knew it was coming and he was planning for it? You think, you think he knew that? Then that's what the first inaugural is about. I think so. He wants to
2: delay it as
1: long as possible. All right, but he didn't.
0: But this is not a saber-rattling speech. No. This well, is no, not, no. if you guys don't line up, we're coming after you. We're going to no. kick some butt down there in the South. It's not a threatening speech. He has not concluded that civil war is just about to happen. It's inevitable. There's nothing we can do about it, so let's go in there with everything we've got. Personally, he might have thought, well, you know, this could happen. So that much you're you're right about. But is this a speech threatening the South? No. Now, there are some people who would answer this question, did Lincoln expect the Civil War? They would look at the first inaugural and they would say, yes, Lincoln was expecting the Civil War and he went out of his way to trigger it. He deliberately sets up this situation at Fort Sumter. In April of 1861, lets the Confederates walk into it so he can blame them for having fired the first shot, and he did it all. It's all his fault. If you think that sounds extreme, if you think that sounds conspiratorial and paranoid, there are plenty of people out there who, in fact, are writing books today who are telling you exactly that. Thomas DiLorenzo is one example of that. Then there are other people who read the same first inaugural and conclude the 180-degree opposite. Not only did Lincoln not expect civil war, but he was willing to sacrifice black people in order to avoid it. He was willing to countenance a 13th Amendment that would specifically forbid the federal government from ever meddling in the relations of slavery and which would encode slavery into the federal constitution legitimize slavery within the federal Constitution, which the Constitution had not up to that point done, except by the circumlocutions I was talking about. That's the original 13th Amendment, not the one that's on the books today. The original 13th Amendment, which Lincoln says I'm willing to play ball with in the first inaugural, would forbid direct federal intervention in the relations of slavery. So there are some people who look at this and say, Oh, Lincoln. Not only did Lincoln not want to go to civil war, but he would sacrifice the slaves to avoid it. That just shows how utterly insincere the man was. Now, actually, the the funny thing is the conclusion that both of those interpretations promote is Lincoln was insincere. It's the same speech and the same words, but somehow entirely different. He's insincere because he was really plotting to start a civil war. No, he was insincere because he was trying to avoid civil war, and he'd sacrifice every black person in America to, to avoid it. And that's the, way, that's the way this gets interpreted. But I think the most interesting thing about this is, in this first inaugural, if we read this, I don't think we're looking at a document which says, bombing will begin in five minutes. This is not a saber-rattling document, is it? All right? Now, if you were a southerner, and you were in the audience that day, March fourth, 1861, Mind you, the Lower South has already begun to secede. South Carolina announced the secession from the Union in December of 1860. It's followed by the, by the Gulf states. Texas has seceded. Now Virginia hasn't. Tennessee hasn't. North Carolina hasn't. But the Lower South has. All right, they've seceded. They've passed ordinances. Well, you know, the situation's not beyond recall. Ordinances can always be repealed. Things can be patched up. No one has shot at anybody else yet. No blood has been spilt. If you're a Southerner listening to this first inaugural, what conclusion do you think you might come to?
2: Yeah? I think that, in fact, the first
1: time I remember teaching this, I thought, like, you know, if I were a Southerner, I would think this is very conciliatory, that my fears about Lincoln were kind of unfounded.
0: What do you think? What do you think? If you were a Southerner listening to this or reading this, what conclusion would you draw? Yeah? Maybe that
2: he's willing to negotiate how how much further can how many other concessions
0: can he get? Yeah, man, if he's willing to, if this guy who was elected as a Republican and who's supposed to be anti-slavery and who talked two years ago, three years ago about houses being divided, now he's coming back and saying, you know, Hey, let's talk about this. Let's make concessions. And you're thinking, oh, maybe we can put the hook in his mouth and take him the whole way out of the water.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, i would
0: mean, be one way you could read this, I suppose. Yeah.
2: He's kind of clearing himself,
1: though, in, that, in the second to last paragraph of the speech. In your hands and not in mine is this whole decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, um, we're not going to assail you. This is, you know, the, you have no old threat rendered to mm-hmm. heaven to destroy the government. I have the one that yeah. says I
0: deserve to protect. Now, yeah. in other words, I'll do something, but I'm not going to throw the first punch. Now, is that the way to start a fight? Anybody here ever start a fight? Well, some of you maybe never started a fight in your lives because you're very peaceful people. But as teachers, you probably intervened in a number of fights, right? Kids slug each other on the playground oh, come on, don't tell me they don't do that these days. All right, because that's, you know, you know, when I, was, when I was young enough to be one of your charges, <laughs> long, long ago, uh, back in the Middle Ages, um, I, you know, I got in my share of fisticuffs. You know, someone looked at me crooked. Yeah, I know how to settle things. I still do. Um, in, in in a case like this, do you, do you ever start a fight? Do you ever pick a fight by saying, "Okay, we're gonna have a fight, but I'm not gonna throw the first punch." <laughs> but does that does that no? But does that sound like an, an aggressive, warlike posture? No, no, no. no, it sounds like it's saying, like, you know, all right, if we can just hold off here, uh, we won't shoot first, we won't throw the first punch. So maybe we can have some room for some peace here. As a southerner, you know, are these? It sounds like you know we're. You're actually ha- developing this strange new respect for Abraham Lincoln. You know the strange new respect award. You know, given to politicians who talk out of both sides of their mouths. When they talk out of the other side, suddenly strange new respect. All right, strange new respect for Abraham Lincoln. Anybody disagree? Anybody look at this and say, Ah, he, this guy's really plotting. Is he really? I don't
1: think he's speaking to the South, though. I think he's speaking
0: to the border states. Oh, I think he's speaking to everybody when he says, "In your hands, my dissatisfied fellow countrymen." Oh yeah, he's talking to them all. Yeah. But he's also telling them things
1: that they don't—they wouldn't like. Secession
2: is is wrong. The union
0: is perpetual. Oh yeah. But but you know, did James Buchanan say anything different in his message to Congress in December of 1860? I mean, Buchanan, good brave James Buchanan. He is brave like the cowardly lion and the Wizard of Oz. Remember the line of the Cowardly Lion, The Wizard of Oz? I'm going to go in there and save Dorothy. I'm going to go in there and knock them all down. I just want you fellows to do one thing. What's that? Talk me out of it. <laughs> so, does, I mean, does, again, are we talking something aggressive and warlike here? Wow, what do I'm a little
2: confused
1: because I'm seeing what my countrymen are doing is Eve deep and I'm hearing these
0: words and I'm thinking, is there some storm coming I just don't see? Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you really wanted to be devious, you could say, ah, this guy Lincoln, this guy Lincoln's trying to divide the South. He's trying to appear as friendly and, and cuddly, you know, like Boyd's bear country down the road, now, when, when in fact we really know what he's really up to. So, no, we shouldn't divide. We shouldn't, be, we shouldn't let this man divide us with his honeyed words about reconciliation and amendments to the Constitution. Conspiracy 202. Yeah, Conspiracy 202. Yeah. All right, so Lincoln has, has said, nah, no, yeah. no, all right, go ahead, go ahead.
1: The, if you're a southerner, the day the speech is delivered, right. you have a man talking about constitutional principles. Right, Okay. yep. A man who studied the founders and is a lawyer and should have supreme respect for the United States Supreme Court. And as a southerner, under the Dred Scott case, you have no need to negotiate you have a man on the pulpit swearing to uphold, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. And in this speech, he says, ignore Dread Scott. So you're, saying,
0: so you're saying I'm not fooled by this guy, Lincoln. I see the AC's got up the sleeve.
1: If, I'm a, if, if I'm you're a If I'm a southerner. hothead secessionist who's also trained in the law.
0: All right, but if, if you're a hothead secessionist, suppose you're not. Suppose you're just a... a I don't know ordinary run-of-the-mill southerner.
1: Great, then I'm going to get approached by the secessionist apostles.
0: <coughs> that's true. To
1: God and talk about why that's we true. Negotiate.
0: That's true, and I'm going to come to that because that's what I'm saving is the last quiver, last arrow in my quiver. If you're a southerner, just a southerner, not not an ideologue who's already made up their mind about secession and there's nothing that anyone could do to dissuade them. If you heard this from Lincoln. Would this, would this say, okay, maybe we shouldn't stampede out the door. Maybe we should talk with this man. Does, this, does he sound reasonable? Does he sound like somebody that you could negotiate with? Yes. Okay. All right. Why don't they then?
2: Because they've already made
1: up their
0: minds. Why have they made up their minds, though?
1: Because they still view him as
2: an apple.
0: Well, yeah, but why? I mean, you couldn't be able to... I mean, you couldn't read the first inaugural and detect in that the here is an abolitionist, could you? Does this sound like William Lloyd Garrison? Does this sound like Frederick Douglass? No. But, but so if you're a Southerner, him. why aren't you pacified by this?
2: He was elected without even being on the ballot in an awful lot of Southern states. It, 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 he might not be the
1: evil, but a worse one.
0: Well, that's true, but you know, four years from, uh, from from now, you can deal with that, can't you? That's what elections are there for, aren't they? Why, why are, so- I mean, are Southerners paranoid here? Let's turn the first question around. Are Southerners paranoid? Have they just been talking to themselves too long? John Brown man. Oh yeah, John Brown, but did John Brown say anything like the first inaugural? I can imagine John Brown getting up and saying, and your hands, might dissatisfy fellow countrymen, not in mine, is the momentous issue of Harper's Ferry. He certainly didn't say that to those five men that he butchered along Pottawatomie Creek. What's going on here? What's going on? What are we not seeing in all of this? What are we not seeing? Yeah? Well, being president is a lot more than just the one man who's been elected. The parties have changed. All the patronage and all the judicial appointments are now going to change. Oh, now you're singing the song. Hmm. Now you're singing the song. First of all, how did Lincoln get elected if he was, in fact, not even on the ballot in several states? How did he get elected? Did he have, the, did he have a majority of the popular vote?
2: No, no.
0: No. He didn't have a majority. You know what percentage he had in the popular vote? Talk about calculating percentages. Not even that high. About 37% of the vote. 37% of the popular vote. Boy, that's not much to become president on, is it? Well, how on earth did he become president then? The Electoral College. The Electoral College elects. Abraham Lincoln by a whopping majority. Now wait a minute, how do you get this to line up? Here's a guy who gets only 37 percent of the popular vote, but he gets this enormous lopsided majority in the Electoral College. How does that happen?
2: Population.
0: Population. Because how do we determine electoral votes? It's all linked. It's all linked at the end of the day to population. What does that say? It says that the population of the states that voted for Lincoln even though they might not represent a numerical majority, nevertheless that population is growing so fast that it commands the majority in the Electoral College. It means that the South is dropping behind, and in fact that it will continue to drop further behind in the future. What has protected slavery up to this point? Except the fact that Southerners, by dint of the three-fifths clause, have always been able to dominate American politics, have always been able to dominate the executive branch, have usually held majorities in Congress. And now, the election of 1860, the numbers tell them that that is slipping away, that the jig is up, that the future is not going to get better, especially if the future involves non-extension of slavery into the territories. Extension of slavery to the territories is the one hope the South has of recouping its political heft in Washington. And when Lincoln says, all I'm opposing is the extension of slavery to the territories, then they say, yeah, that's the problem. It's like saying, well, all I'm doing is standing on this diver's air hose. (laughs) Oh, yeah, you're just, just standing on an air hose. Problem is, that's what's providing life to the diver. And so the same thing is true here. So just on the basis of population, Southerners are saying, you know, Lincoln might be nice. Lincoln might be user-friendly. Lincoln might be saying these things, but things are going to go downhill in a handbasket from here. We might as well get out while the getting's good. Now, there's another thing. Another thing was raised here, and that is patronage. I said earlier that everything in this day before civil service, everything in the federal structure of the federal government, is awarded on the basis of patronage, in this case, executive patronage. It's in consultation with people in the cabinet, it's in consultation with people in Congress, but it's discretionary. And At the end of the day, it's up to the president to decide. Now, in an environment where the president is a Republican, what discretion does the president have in appointing federal office holders? What can the president appoint? What jobs are in his gift?
2: Supreme Court
0: justices. I'm sorry?
1: Supreme Court justices. All right, nominations
0: to the Supreme Court. And that's at the very top. Let's work our way down. There are post offices. Let's let's stop just with post offices, because post offices is a very sore point with the South. From the 1830s on, Southern postmasters regularly censored the mails. They prevented mass mailings of abolitionist material. They censored and excluded abolitionist newspapers. Is this against the law? Yes. But when the South controls the executive branch, who's going to prosecute them? Now, why did they do this? Because they did not want slaves, those slaves who might secretly be literate, reading abolitionist material, reading abolitionist newspapers, because it might incite them to revolt. But now, if a Republican president appoints postmasters, those postmasters may not censor the mail, and the abolitionist material may come through it, and the slaves may read it, and who knows what will happen. sorry? You mentioned the mail specifically. Yeah. Now, he says, you know, I'm, not going to, I'm not going to try to interfere with the mails. He doesn't have to. The South is the one that's been interfering with the mails. All right, postmaster. What else is the president? What else is a federal appointment? Federal judges? Why are federal judges going to be important to slaveholders? Overturn Dred Scott. Well, maybe they'll overturn Dred Scott. That's at the Supreme Court level. But even in the lower levels, appeals courts. Fugitive slave law. (laughs) Who adjudicates fugitive slave cases? Where are appeals going to come? And if you've got Republican judges, they'll find in favor of the fugitives all the time. And what will that do? That will incite more fugitives. All right, we got job. What else? About the military. Ah. Who signs the commissions for officers in the military? President. President of the United States. Up to this point, the American military is a preserve of the Democratic Party and its southern wing. Who are the principal officers of the United States Army in 1860? Southerners. Who is at the head? Who is the senior officer of the United States Army? (laughs) Winfield Scott, who is a? Virginian. Go down the list of who the regimental commanders are. 2nd Cavalry. Who is the Colonel of the 2nd Cavalry? Albert Sidney Johnston, soon to be a Confederate general. Who's a Lieutenant Colonel? Robert E. Lee. Go down the list. Southerners. But now, if you have a Republican signing those commissions, who is likely to get a commission in the Army? Republicans. Not only a commission in the Army, but what about all those federal military installations across the South, like Fort Sumter, Fort Moultrie, Fort Pickens, and so on and so forth? Who will be in command of those installations? Republican appointees. And if fugitive slaves try to run away to those forts, do you suppose those Republican appointees are going to cheerfully return those runaway slaves to their masters? Well, maybe. Maybe not. If you're a southerner and you listen to Abraham Lincoln, do you really have all the assurances that you want? No. When Lincoln is making concessions, what looked like concessions in the first inaugural. Is he really conceding what Southerners want to have conceded? No. This is not a speech about war. But on the other hand, it's not a speech about giving away the game to slaveholders either. And when slaveholders read or listen, when the South reads or listens to the first inaugural, their response to it is not paranoid. It's not irrational. They have pegged Lincoln correctly. They know that he will not assault them directly, but he knows that indir- they know that indirectly he has the power to undermine the foundations of slavery, and they do not want to take bets on whether this anti-slavery man, this house-divided man from Illinois, might just be likely to employ those means. Oh, yes, when they hear the first inaugural, they decide it's time to go. And in a sense, in a sense, they're right. They have seen the handwriting on the wall. They know that Lincoln's election means, sooner or later, emancipation. The question is what are they going to do about it? They're going to get out while they think they still can. And therefore, in their hands, will be the momentous issue of civil war. All right.